joining us on uh, Zoom this morning. We have Steve and Doug joining us from the far east and far west side of the uh, greater Cleveland area, Burton and uh, Oberlin. And joining me here at Wilton, we've got uh, Jeff coming from even further <laughs> from New York State, drove across this morning. And, uh, and Joe and Keith and Mark is back, Mark Doman. Yeah, yeah, even further away. <laughs> so, I thought what I would talk about this morning is to, okay, since we're going to be so deeply entrenched for a while in, in Buddhist, in that uh, Buddhist text uh, titled The Lotus Sutra, uh, I thought maybe as a little sidebar, uh, we might stray outside of Buddhist teaching, although it certainly has great relevance to that teaching. Uh, and in particular, uh, relevance to one of the key themes of the Lotus Sutra. But, uh, but it's coming from uh, a broader, if I can use, uh, use that uh, in, in, in connection with uh, the Lotus Sutra, which is obviously pretty broad too, so maybe I won't use the term broad after all, but instead just say it's it's looking at it equally broadly, I think, but uh, from from a somewhat different perspective. And the te the particular teaching uh, that we're going to be uh, kind of investigating from different angles is the teaching of one vehicle, which I know has struck a chord with. Uh, with some of you, at least. And to look at that, keeping in mind that the Lotus Sutra was written in the year 200, uh, I think as, as practitioners, we need to always be mindful of, of practicing this Dharma in our time. 21st century rather than the second and third century. Uh, so the notion of one vehicle certainly would resonate today as well. Uh, but there wouldn't be that significant a percentage of the population that would see that as being uh, something you would find in, in the Lotus Sutra, for instance. I think the one vehicle in our time and in our part of the world would be seen as science, the, the world of reason, the world that was uh, kind of given birth in, in a sense uh, by what we call the Enlightenment. And that's the one vehicle. If you want to investigate reality as it is, 
that's the way you would go about doing it. So for us, as 21st century practitioners looking at the, the, uh, the one vehicle, I think it's, it can be helpful to us to kind of look at that. And one of the, the way that I wanted to, to kind of introduce us to it uh, this morning is by way of kind of a coming together of science and religion. Since these both are, in a sense, uh, sometimes competing as the one vehicle through the centuries down to our time. So I'm going to be calling, uh, calling from uh, uh, a book that I read much earlier this past year titled Why We Believe. And the subtitle to it is Evolution and the Human Way of Being. So it's actually coming from one of the soft sciences, but written by an anthropologist. The, the hardcore scientists wouldn't even deem them to be scientists. <laughs> but uh, be that as it may, we're not going to go down that path. <laughs> But this sense of why we believe. And the other, another path that, that we touch on from time to time, but I don't want to go down that path here this morning either, is the role of faith, belief in our practice, in Zen. Uh, because it does have a role, but it's a somewhat different role than it has in many other religions which have a supreme being, a deity, and a set of dogma upon which one invests their belief. So we may have occasion as we go through this to kind of make reference to, to belief, faith in our tradition. Uh, but if we do, uh, it'll just kind of be in passing. I don't want to, that would be the subject of a different talk. So I'd like to begin with, uh, right at the very beginning of this book in the preface, as you would expect, you know, it begins with a, kind of a working definition of what belief is for this author. He says, belief is the ability to draw on our range of cognitive and social resources, our histories and experiences, and combine them with our imagination. So I'm going to stop here for a moment by, by referencing... Uh, our range of cognitive and social resources, you know, basically our 
mental capacity for forming ideas and broader concepts. Combined with our social resources, the fact that we're not creating these ideas as solitary beings. So our social resources speaks to our interdependence with, with uh, fellow beings who share their ideas with us, and then we work with these. Combine, and this is where, and our histories and experiences are really just further uh, workings from these cognitive and social resources. Histories are really, you know, originally they were handed down orally until uh, written language appeared on the scene, and then we could put them into writing, and they became uh, a little easier to transmit, and with with a higher degree of, of credibility in terms of what was being passed on. And our experiences is just opening up even more broadly the source for, for our beliefs. And, you know, this is a list. I, I joke about all the lists in Buddhism, but we encounter lists in science all the time. I mean, science is based upon them. That's good to remember. You know, we're not, we don't have a monopoly on the lists. Every time somebody engages in a, in a scientific endeavor, they tend to find it useful to to distinguish certain aspects of reality and draw up lists. So here the lists include cognitive and social resources, histories and experiences, all of which provide a foundation for how we establish our beliefs. Now from, from our Mahayana tradition, you know, we recognize that, well, that's just a handy, skillful means list. Is it all inclusive? No, it can't be. Okay. Hearkening to innumerable meanings, innumerable resources. So we can try to categorize them by groups so we can fit as many in as we can. But really, we can't just ex exhaustively define what that base of our beliefs are. And then there's this magical facility we have that he, he throws in at the end that all of these four, our cognitive social and social resources, our histories and experiences, then get combined with our imagination our power, and it is a power. That's a power, as he says, and this is the continuation of, of the quote from, from this opening of his preface. It is the power to think beyond what is here and now and develop mental representations in order to see and feel and know something, an idea, a vision, a necessity, a possibility, a truth. 
that is not immediately present to the senses. And then to invest wholly and authentically in that something so that it becomes one's reality. A lot of stuff packed into a short, fairly short paragraph. But it is a power of, of thinking. The power is, is, is the correct term because it allows us to create, to become creative. Which is why we have all these various beliefs. There's no one belief. And that's because of their being sourced from the imagination, the roots of our creativity. And it's, an, it's important, I think, to recognize that science, as it's enjoyed success after success in terms of, of describing the reality that's right in front of us here and now, now it uh, begins to uh, actually take on uh, tasks that in the past were seen as being properly uh, assigned to, to areas like religion or philosophy, uh, things about the origins of the universe. And to look at how much does, uh, does imagination, creativity, enter into that? Things like the Big Bang, which are certainly based on observations here and now. But they're kind of postulating one way of accounting for those observations. They're imagining. We're never going to experience the Big Bang. By its very nature, actually, we couldn't. No, nobody could experience it because they're, uh, it's kind of like a nice Buddhist void because there is no distinguish, distinguishing. <laughs> All is truly one. It's before there's any separation. So you can begin to see how science and and uh, and uh, the spiritual realities all of a sudden start to look very similar. The void. The book of Genesis talks about it. Buddhism certainly talks about it, and now scientists talk. In science, they would say, many scientists, not, I don't want to uh, treat them as just one, one uh, 
entity. There are many, many scientists, but uh, but unlike having a creator God who brings things into existence, you know, scientists would say, well, uh, because of of quantum mechanics, you know, you can't have a void because you have these particles, virtual particles that just all of a sudden pop into existence. So many of them would say that accounts for the origins of our universe. Just something popped into existence. A quantum fluctuation, you might say. They say. So, to, to now come back to this sense of one vehicle, I think we, we have to go deeper with this than just to look at it as one set of teachings, one text, one set of methods, the scientific method. You know, I think this book and and the uh, the description of belief maybe comes a little bit closer. Look, and it, I'll I'll get into it in a little more detail about how our species developed over time. These cognitive resources, these social resources that would lead us ultimately to be able to create these vehicles. So the one vehicle is kind of a process. So it's not a thing. And we seem to always be coming back to that notion, that important realization for Buddhism that there are no things. Everything is in process. So the one vehicle is, is suited just because the term vehicle, well, that's a thing. So we have to remind ourselves, no things. And this book, even though he doesn't put it in these terms, but that's what he's saying. I don't think you would disagree with what what I'm extracting from it. That it's our whole history, all our ancient twisted karma that has generated the one vehicle in its myriad uh, manifestations. which is because it's one vehicle. That's why uh, for those who, who I, I will say are explorers of the one vehicle, open to the one vehicle, this would include people that are looking at ways that science and religion are complementary rather than in conflict. 
that would be part of the one vehicle in the 21st century. Maybe the, the heart of it. So this is for, for those of us who are practicing in that way. This is to, to practice the one vehicle, I think, at our time. So we can derive uh, a basic platform and certainly inspiration from these uh, very dated texts. They're still valid and worthy of study. They can be very helpful to us. But we do need to apply them here and now, as is always the case with any of these teachings. So, kind of the, the conclusion that he draws at the end of this section of his preface is that uh, we are human, therefore we believe. That it's just kind of part of our, uh, our development, predating even our particular species, but hominids more generally speaking. We believe that's part of who we are. So to further bring this up to the 21st century, we also have to keep in mind that uh, you know, uh, we're, if we're talking about uh, a hominid view of reality, uh, that might be one vehicle for us, but how about all these other ways of being? How does this apply to even our more distant ancestors? The, the realm of primates. Do they have one vehicle? And this book being written by an anthropologist does go down that road in a manner of speaking. He does investigate, spend some time looking at uh, uh, primates and other species who, who have more advanced uh, mental faculties like cetaceans, dolphins, whales, whose experience is rich enough that uh, they would seem to have some capacity for belief, uh, a means of developing what we could term culture. And that becomes an important part of, of uh of our development of belief, 
can be found embedded in our culture. And one important aspect of culture, of course, is religion. But it's not limited just to that, nor is belief. <clears throat> and one thing to keep in mind here, which is uh, always the case, we have this uh, mutual feedback system that's uh, at the heart of interdependence, the interdependence of all things. Uh, this is true for belief as well. So belief is central for us, both as an outcome, what creates our belief, but then also as a cause. So it also then comes back and impacts our experience, our reality. And there's this just continuous loop that's in place once, once belief is created. It's not a thing, it's a process. So every thing in that very open sense of it is, is actually a process and it acts in this way. So our belief, and we certainly uh, see evidence of this all the time, it comes back and it impacts our reality our experience. And sometimes it does that in a way that causes us to adjust our belief. Because we see that it doesn't really match up so well. And other times it reinforces it. So maybe you've had the uh, experience of, of having a belief that got changed. Did you ever believe in Santa Claus? <laughs> to make it seasonal for us. Yeah. I suspect you probably did. <laughs> Unless you grew up in a very enlightened family. <laughs> so you had to adjust to life post-belief <laughs> in that realm at least. But that's just one uh, humorous example of something that we go through. In, in deeper ways. You know, first loves that all of a sudden we believe. <laughs> and then more deeper spiritual. That just don't hold. But then there are aspects of belief that do <laughs> cohere and that we do find to be a guide for us. But it's important. I mean, in terms of our Zen practice now, that we travel this path completely open to what's in front of us. 
so that if something doesn't fit, you know, we need to be prepared because this is a process, not a thing. It's not about making it fit. We need to constantly be testing. Does it fit? Does it fit? Are all things impermanent? Are all things no self? Are they, in fact, interdependent? Their whole existence is derived from that. What is dukkha? Constantly testing practices. And they they kind of call for that anyway. I mean, practices like the four Brahma Viharas, the divine abidings, also sometimes referred to as the immeasurables, which I like because we have the innumerables and the immeasurables. We might <laughs> back backtrack to this in a bit here, because that's, that's an interesting point. But, I mean, to practice universally loving kindness, compassion, that can become difficult. For, for people in situations we consider very difficult. That's what makes them difficult. <laughs> I can't practice loving kindness in this scenario with this individual. So they get tested. Get tested. And do we really find our way through those tests? Or do they knock us out of that practice? And we decide that doesn't, doesn't work. Not in my life. I'm sorry, maybe yours. That's <laughs> <clears throat> not a path for me. Then what can you say? In the Lotus Sutra, maybe you could find some skillful means to help them through that uh, hindrance that they're encountering. And that's really what Buddhist teachings come down to. So the Lotus Sutra, even though it's uh, almost two millennia old now, still has some pretty good guidance overall for for helping us on a spiritual path. So this belief has an outcome and a cause, part of the process. Process that goes on from generation to generation, gets transmitted. So that's one of the reasons why it's important for us to honor that in our practice. That's why uh, we do in our service acknowledge the ancestors, the first ancestor, 
and all the way down through our to our particular lineage, Cobanchino lineage. Because it's a process. And we carry that process forward as a Sangha and each of us individually. So to come back to kind of this uh, this sense of, of one vehicle that I'm I'm opening us up to the uh, the human capacities for cooperation, collaboration, and deep social reliance on and commitment to others. So the uh, these critical social and cognitive resources that underlie uh, the capacity for belief. Uh, these find their roots in our histories as primates. So this isn't something that's just uh, been generated since the axial age, as Karen Armstrong termed it, uh, going back to uh, about 2,500 years. And this is something that we can trace way, way, way back. Uh, the, this text uh, makes reference to something, a very important quality for us, compassion. You know, Buddhists don't have a monopoly on that either. And archaeologists find evidence of compassion in very pre, uh, pre-sapiens species. How can they determine that? Is they find uh, very elderly, uh, uh, very uh, disabled people, people that maybe were born with a severe birth defect, but they were cared for by their community, by their family and the, the broader community. This isn't something that's unique to us. We can see this in other species. And through archaeological research, they found it in, in species that, uh, that preceded us within our lineage. So compassion this core con- core pra- part of our practice is not uniquely human. We share this. And one important point uh, that, that gets made here that, that uh, also kind of has echoes of, of one vehicle from a uh, physical standpoint, uh, 
he points out that we have more in common with, with one another genetically as sapiens than any mammal with a global distribution, meaning they've been spread out across the planet to some degree, rather than just being extremely localized. So we, we are very closely related genetically to one another. It's kind of one of our exemplary uh, aspects. So when we look at contemporary humans and how enormously successful and widespread we are, this uh, would seem to, to maybe help account for that. Our uh, ability, our enhanced ability to actually uh, be with one another. creating these feedback loops and all of the various interfaces. One of the reasons why, for instance, uh, figures like Joseph Campbell in studying mythology found so much commonality. It didn't always point to that there was some actual physical interaction taking place. People just developed in similar ways, even though they were thousands of miles apart. The great similarity. Many other species, once they were separated, they literally became different species. Oh, this was kind of the norm. Speciation, they call it in the science. The creation of new species just because of that separation. Not us. Not us. It's, it's very clear genetic similarity. One vehicle. <laughs> Looking at it from a genetic standpoint. but not getting caught by any of these standpoints. The power of innumerable meanings. But again, this sense of do, do our beliefs track with reality, whether it's science or spirituality, religion, and being prepared to adjust those as is needed. To always be open. So there's a real humility that's contained within innumerable meanings. As opposed to the arrogance of of uh, the way we would normally take one vehicle.
So this is the, the experience of oneness with humility. So I've been even more than usual uh, as we start practicing with the Lotus Sutra, uh, referencing Christianity. And this is a, a good example there, you know, the figure of Jesus. In terms of humility and the impact that that has had on that tradition for many of his followers. Because it's certainly there in his teachings. Even though he was the way, the one vehicle. Be able to do that with humility. So, I think maybe I'll start to uh, wrap up here to make sure we have time for some discussion. I'm hoping this prompts some of that. And, uh, and uh, I, I certainly have enough material here. I expect we're, we'll uh, be continuing on with this uh, kind of as a sidetrack with the Lotus Sutra for at least a little while. So I'm going to stop at this point then. Was having it with I think it does, but I couldn't. (laughs) I want you to look at it. (laughs) All right. Yeah, this is a deep one. <laughs> a deep question. I remember, I did react to this. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, yeah, this is a very, con- the, the confusing part of all of it for me, which um, comes back to how things are, are happening. And in that, goes to say for everything in our own mind also. Um, when you talk about uh, a dependent arising, all the thoughts coming out, as Gurdjieff said, nothing is yours. Um, everything in your head, everything that comes out of it, is, has been put there. And 
if you claim credit for nothing. And Einstein agreed with that. He said, I claim credit for nothing. Everything is determined by causes over which we have no control. In that respect, I'm thinking looking at the universe is just incrementally indexing forward in time and everything that's happening is happening was determined long before it happened. Us all sitting here right now, this moment has been, the universe has been leading up to this for Kalpas. And therefore, when I'm thinking about the things that have been put in my head from the time I was little, all my beliefs and everything else, well, that had a purpose also. I mean, it happened not for no reason. And I'm kind of locked into, and I guess this comes back to the eightfold path of right view. There's no fixed view. And I've got a very fixed view about cause and effect, about the kind of horizon. It's like, this is happening because it was supposed to happen and it couldn't have possibly happened any other way. And I have a very fixed view about that. So I think, so if I drop my fixed view, can things actually happen outside the laws of causation? Is that possible? And if so, that changes the whole universe for me. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that was my long drawn out question. Yeah. That's a deep one. Yeah. I mean, by my philosophical side, it's what makes it so deep is because, you know, kind of in the footsteps of Kant, you know, he saw causality as just part of the way we process things. So you're asking us literally to kind of step out of being who we are. We automatically go there. We organize our experience to fit with causality. So to open that up, certainly we could look at that. But it's kind of like one of those statements then that would defy any kind of justification, unless you could find a cause for it. So it's the ultimate in a good Zen paradox. You could say, well, it can't be. At least in terms of our getting our head wrapped around it. So we just, but yet we can have that thought. So the role of imagination. And that is an important part of the way we're wired to be able to have those wild, crazy notions that don't, even though they don't fit with my experience of reality, but I can have the idea. And sometimes, you know, they're just totally whacked out ideas that have no relevance, but some of them become pretty thought-provoking, like that one. What would that world look like? You know, so a figure like Einstein, who was so comfortable with thought experiments, he could have a field day with that, I'm sure. 
probably more so than any of us, <laughs> certainly more than, than I can. But yeah, I can at least go, go far enough with it to appreciate it and where that takes one to, to be able to, that's really letting go. That's letting me. That would be kind of like recognizing that space and time are just complete fictions. Because we can't conceive of our reality outside of those dimensions. Just doesn't register. That's part of our conditioning, our ancient twisted yeah. karma. Yeah, that's one of those break through the boundaries, and those those I always like. <laughs> Walking through a house of mirrors. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's kind of hearkening back to the seven factors of awakening. That second one, the investigation of dhammas, of phenomena. <laughs> That's really investigating them all the way. <laughs> That's taking that uh, that factor very, very seriously. <clears throat> and our, then our takeaway from it is, it's just another elaboration on shunyata and the fact that we are. You know, we, these are all just fabrications. So we can even space and time. Or causality. It's just a fabrication. That's our way of, of putting together, making coherent our experience. So we can exist with it. Literally, because if we don't have those, well, we couldn't survive. Our species, rather than being so successful, it's been at least within this short time frame, it would have been... <laughs> right off the cliff. You know, these ways of, of fabricating reality have been part of our huge success. But they might also be part of our downfall. <laughs> so that's our imagination as well, looking into the future, saying, well, it's been good so far, but uh, they're already warning some pretty clear warning signs. The alarm's going off that actually Mm -hmm. yeah, this may may not be heading to a good place at all. And then we can blame the fall on, on all that. But so far, it's <laughs> 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 good stuff. <laughs> so I'm bullish on the species, right? <laughs> We will fix whatever needs to be fixed. <laughs> One vehicle might be uh, better be well crash tested. <laughs> <laughs> One vehicle is a Subaru. Mm. 
because I'm, uh, when you started up, I was thinking, oh, my, oh, I always had a hang up on faith, and then mm -hmm. are faith and belief interchangeable in this discussion? I think so. I thought, yeah, so. I think yeah. So. at first I was, I was making a difference in my mind, like, then as you went on, it became clear to me, I thought that they were interchangeable. Yeah. Um, you could, you could, Define them in a way where they could be distinguishable. Yeah, that's what I was doing at first. Like, yeah. sci I believe in science, but I have faith that this is the right path. Right. Kind of, right. <laughs> I think it's more helpful to us <laughs> to see them as interchangeable. But then, as Joe was talking, I kept I was thinking about where do you draw the line? So you have the one vehicle, and you're talking about speciesization, and, and I was thinking, okay, well. You know, we, we kind of see this the vehicle. It's our, our I was seeing it as our vehicle. It's a human yeah. vehicle. It's right. a human experience. But then go next level down the to, to you know apes or uh, as you go down evolutionary change. So what's right. their vehicle? Is it the same as our vehicle? And then you go down to fish, and then you go to a, a mosquito, right. and then you go down to a yeah, bacteria. Bacteria, <laughs> bacteria down to the unfortunate. Mm -hmm. uh, at what point does something fall outside of the, of the one vehicle? Right? It never does. I don't know where I was going with that. But... <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, the role of imagination for, for yeah. starters, because yeah. that's, we have to rely on that. And imagination actually does, doesn't get um, uh, much if any attention at all in, in Zen uh, or in science, but it's our, it's our interpretation of the study in science that requires our imagination to get to the yeah. Well, what I think we're seeing as a result. Uh, yeah, it's that interpretation. was that was true at one time. Now I think yeah. it's because of the the, the extent to which. Science is going. I think they're starting to realize that actually imagination is, is an important tool. And then major figures like an Einstein have certainly helped in that regard to, to point out to them that uh, it has a very important role to play. That it ultimately comes back to what's here <laughs> and now, but we can see more openly and more possibilities in what's here and now by bringing our powers of imagination to bear. What is the, how does the imagined nature of your child play into that thing? Yeah, and that, uh, boy, that's a great question because they do use the term imagine and I don't know how that would relate to like the old Sanskrit term, because the way they're using it is just that it's fabricated. Uh, so it's, it's, it's kind of a limited view of imagination. It's one aspect of it, but they're just pointing out that it's, it's something that we create. It's a subjective thing. So all of our, uh, uh, delusions are kind of being imparted to it. Uh, our poisons and all that. Sorry about that. Oh, that's <laughs> <a> <laughs> uh, 
He drives that you had some medical device. <laughs> 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 Your face <paper> yeah. yeah. <laughs> It's like my imagination right yeah, away. Right. an alarm. Daily alarm. And it is for medication. Oh, okay. See, I did. Medication. Yeah, wrong guy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Either one. <laughs> They're both effective. So I have a, um, let's see. I've been thinking about the evening gatha lately <clears throat> and um, specifically about taking heed and, mm-hmm. you know, do not squander your life. Sure. And it's such a, Strong, heavy, yeah, uh, proclamation, <laughs> or uh, you know, um, gets our attention. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> and and relating the evening gatha and that particular phrase about "do not squander your life" right. and being present in the here and now. And the concept of, you know, just this is it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, I don't know how this ties into the one vehicle, but I'm just wondering if there's any, any relevance. Um, <clears throat> so in, in beliefs, mm-hmm. like, I, I might believe that you or somebody else is squandering their life because they're doing a, B, C with, you know, their time. Right. Or sometimes I look at myself and I, you know, might get on Facebook and get sucked into some stupid videos on car crashes or, um, I don't know. <laughs> like I spend, I do Wordle every morning and I think, oh man, I wait, you know, did I, did I just waste a half hour trying to figure out this five letter word? <laughs> you know? <laughs> Anyhow, I I just I, I don't know what my question is, but it has something to do with the evening gotha where it says do not squander, do not squander your life. life. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but we're also in Buddhism in the Dharma where we we learn about um just being present in the here and now and, and not having any grasping or goals or right. Um mm-hmm. So how did that all relate to do not squander your life? You know? Yeah. Like, oh, I don't want to squander my life. Yeah. And <clears throat> and basically, I mean my uh my use of the, the evening gata is simply about remembering how precious yeah. okay. my life is and each and every moment within that life. To always have that kind of at least in the back of my mind and, and bring it up to the, the front of my mind from time to time. So it's it's truly never too far away from my immediate awareness. Uh, and that's really sufficient, I think. Mm-hmm. Then, because uh, we talk about the importance of gratitude, appreciation. Uh, I mentioned Maizumi Roshi wrote a book 
that he titled Appreciate Your Life. I would say the evening gossip is about appreciating your life mm -hmm. and how very <clears throat> essential it is. How very precious. All these causes and conditions like Joe is referring to. Yeah. Wow, the whole universe came together to create this moment. So take heed, appreciate your life. Yeah. As opposed to take don't do squander, squander your life. Yeah, because if you're appreciating your life, yeah. you're not you're squandering. Okay. Yeah. That's a little um, more Thich Nhat Hanish. There you go. <laughs> that, you, you know, appreciate your life. The other one, I'm like, whoa. <laughs> Shit. Yeah. yeah. Like, you know, yeah. Give it a hug and say, how are you, like? Yeah. <laughs> are you good? I have one other quick question. Yeah. That uh, Avalokiteshvara uh, what do you call, statue? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I just noticed today, I know when Ken him we're supposed to be you know, <laughs> but I, I noticed that she she or he or I don't know what her pronoun is, but um <laughs> in one hand is up in um what's that, prayer mudra or but the second hand, yeah. her her left hand is holding. It looks like it's coming out of that lotus. It looks like it's a vine. Okay. You see that lotus yeah, down yeah, at the very bottom? Yeah, yeah. It I looks see. like it's a root. Yeah, or, exactly. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's, uh, supposedly had a sword. Now that's Manjushri. That's another Bodhisattva. And it's clearly a sword when you see a Manjushri statue. Yeah. So I, I yeah, I think. I mean, is there some. Is there a significance of why she's holding on to that root of the lotus? <coughs> well. Mud? What is the. I could make some comments about it, but I preface it by saying, remember innumerable meanings, so I can uh, throw a meaning up there. Yeah. But, uh, uh, you know, any religious imagery, if it's really powerful, should lend itself to more than one take. But my take on that would be that, uh, and of course, I just uh, talked about the Lotus a couple of weeks ago in the first introductory talk on the Lotus Sutra about the image of the Lotus and this flower that's rooted in the mud. Yeah. So that's kind of like Avalokiteshvara's deep connectedness mm -hmm. to, to the earth, to, to what, to that oneness that we all and that's uh and then we could you know make a connection between that and hearer of the cries of the world the deep connectedness which is from which the compassion is is coming mm -hmm. uh, but that's just my for throwing <laughs> some meanings <laughs> Well, then you know it's a good thing. <laughs> Call on your magic nature. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. 
Anything else? Or? Good. Right. Well, I'm glad I stopped what I did because I, I, I knew we'd have some rich discussion. <laughs> May our intention equally penetrate every being and place with the true merit of Buddha's way. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. So, we'll be back Thursday, and next Saturday is a Zazenka.